Good morning, everyone. Always a big treat to be with you in the East. A number of many years ago, I was in prison. It was only for three hours, but those three hours changed my life. They changed my understanding, they changed my perspective, they changed how I saw prayer and the understanding that God can change the most impossible situation through prayer. In 1994, a group of pastors from Winnipeg went down to Argentina to investigate the revival that was going on there. And we found a genuine revival in the most unusual place. It was called Los Olmos Prison. Los Olmos Prison was the worst prison in Argentina. It was a terrible, horrible place. It had 3,000 of the worst criminals, drug dealers, rapists, murderers, thieves. It was a five-story building, and the fourth floor was controlled by, the, by a, a group uh, they called the Elephants. And that floor controlled the whole prison. It was such an evil place. There was drug dealing and murders going on, even in the prison. But God had another plan. In the 1980s, a man by the name of Juan Zaccarelli, who was a prison guard, had got a burden from the Lord to begin to pray for revival in the prison. And so because he believed in corporate prayer, he, he found another Christian prisoner who happened to be a pastor, an ex-pastor, and they found 15 timid Christians in the prison and they gathered them together to prayer. There were 17 of them in 3,000 prisoners. And they began to pray. And they prayed. And they prayed. They called out to Jesus. And then, you know, because prayer is primary. Prayer is the most important thing we can do. But prayer isn't everything. But everything begins with prayer. And so they began with prayer, and then they realized they had to do something else if they wanted to see revival. They had to act. They had to obey. They had to preach the gospel. So Juan Zaccarelli went to the warden, and he said, Warden, we want to have a crusade. And the warden said, a what? He said, a crusade. A crusade. He spit the words out. He said, you mean one of those gospel things? He said, yes, warden, we do. He said, never over my dead body will you ever have a crusade in this prison. Juan Zaccarelli said, warden, never say never with God. So they left. He left the office. And what do you think he went back and did? He prayed. He got those 15 to 16 other guys and they prayed and they prayed and they hounded the warden and they prayed and prayed. Finally, the warden gave in. He said, okay, have your crusade. So they preached the gospel over the radio in the prison and 50 men got saved. Now there were 67 born again Christians in the prison. And guess what they did? They prayed. They organized themselves into prayer. And they had another crusade over the, over the radio. And they preached again the gospel. And a hundred men got saved this time. Now there were 167 born again believers in the prison. They started to pray 24 hours a day. 
They took over whole cell groups. They prayed. They had crusades. They prayed. They had crusades. And when we went there in 1994, we went into that prison and there was no fear. It was amazing. If you've ever been in prisons, you know it. They're full of fear. But there was no fear. And we went into the little chapel service. And we had a chapel and there were 900 born-again believers in that. And it was amazing. We worshiped the Lord together. And because they can't go out on mission, anybody who comes in, they lay hands on them. And they pray for them. And they send them out as their missionaries. And so they laid hands on us pastors. And we all fell down on the floor. The Holy Spirit was moving so powerfully. And they sent us out. Three years later, there were 1,500 born-again believers in that prison. Half the prison was saved. The warden got saved. The guards got saved. Today, there are over 2,000 born-again believers. And their church is called Christ the Only Hope Church. The whole prison was totally, totally changed. In fact, it was so changed, the government said to Juan Zaccarelli, Juan, we'd like you to take over a, a, a whole prison. He said on one condition, it's a Christian prison. Christian guards, Christian inmates, because we're going to pray. And so they took over this old rundown prison, and they took all the gates and the bars and the cell doors off, and then they made a garden in it, and because they fasted two days a week and prayed all the time, they started to make money in the prison, and the prison actually started a food bank for the poor in the neighborhood around the prison. The prisoners were feeding the poor. Because when we pray, something always happens. And that's the title of my message today. When we pray, something always happens. Why don't we say that together? When we pray, something always happens. That's the truth. Okay, let's look at Acts chapter 4. If you would turn to Acts chapter 4. Now, Ken and David have been talking about prayer for the last three weeks. In fact, those messages were so powerful. They were amazing. They talked about the purpose of prayer. They talked about the, uh, the power of prayer. They talked about the priority of prayer. And today, I'm going to talk about the practice of prayer, particularly corporate prayer. So let's read this passage together in Acts chapter 4. Starting in verse 21. Now you know what's happened in the book of Acts. The church, the early church, was in the upper room. They were praying, the Bible says. On the day, on the day of Pentecost, what were they doing in the upper room? They were praying. And the Holy Spirit came powerfully. 3,000 people got saved as they preached the gospel in other tongues. And then... In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John were going up to the temple to pray. And on the way, they, there was this beggar, and the beggar was asking for some, a handout. And Peter said to him, silver and gold, have I none? But what I have, I'm going to give you in the name of Jesus Christ. Stand up and walk. And he lifts him up, and the guy's healed. He'd been lame since he was, for 40 years, and he was healed. And 2,000 more people got saved. And then the chief priests 
and the Pharisees and the elders, they got really upset. They hauled Peter and John in. They were threatening them. Don't you preach in this name anymore. And that's where we pick up the story here in Acts 4 verse 21. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because the people were all praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Verse 23, when they re were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit here in this place among us today. And we thank you, Lord, for the purpose and plans you have for this people here in this place and for the hundreds and hundreds of people around this place. And we ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would release all that is in the heart of Jesus this morning. I pray that you will lift this community to a new level of authority and presence and power in prayer for your glory and to accomplish your purposes. And we ask that in Jesus' mighty and powerful name. Amen. I want to give you five characteristics of a praying church from this passage. And the first one is this. They believed in prayer. Verse 24 says, when they heard the threats, they raised their voices to God. The early church believed in prayer. They had confidence in prayer and they had confidence in the God who answers prayer. They were birthed in prayer, Acts 1 and Acts 2 tell us. They created a culture of prayer, Acts 2 tells us. They were devoted to prayer. Acts 2 verse 42 says that means they adhered to prayer. They were steadfastly attentive to prayer. They continued all the time in prayer. They persevered in prayer. They turned to prayer when trouble came, this passage tells us. They resorted to prayer when they had a dispute, Acts 6 tells us, with the widows and the deacons. They depended on prayer when they were persecuted in Acts chapter 12. And Ken talked about that a couple of weeks ago. The first thing the early church did was pray. They didn't talk. They didn't complain. They didn't grumble. They didn't debate. They didn't fellowship. They didn't eat. They didn't lobby. They didn't write letters. They prayed. Jesus said in Luke chapter 18, men always ought to pray and not lose heart. Do you know prayer is the best kept secret on planet earth? This vehicle, this simple little vehicle, doesn't matter whether you're a child. It doesn't matter whether you're in your 90s. doesn't matter whether you can hardly speak or not. This vehicle of prayer taps us in to Almighty God. And when we pray, always happens. The Bible constantly reminds us of the priority of prayer. Do you know where the first mention of prayer is? Anybody know? 
First mention of prayer. They're obviously not reading their papers. <laughs> it's right at the beginning of the Bible. It's right in the book of Genesis, chapter 4. Genesis 1, creation. Genesis 2, marriage and man. Genesis 3, sin and the fall. Genesis 4, Cain kills Abel. Adam and Eve have Seth. And then right at the very end of Genesis chapter 4, it says this profound little phrase. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Now, David mentioned this uh, last week when he talked about every religion, every people has some form of prayer. It's because we're created to pray. You have within you some God-designed capacity to pray, to talk to God, to call upon God. Everybody does. Jesus himself, the Gospels tells us, lived a life of prayer. In Luke chapter 3, Jesus is getting baptized, the beginning of his ministry. And the Bible says this, Jesus came up out of the water and as he was praying, as he was praying, the Holy Spirit descended on him in the form of a dove and a voice came out of heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, what's he doing? And then Luke 5 says, he went off to a desolate place to? Luke 6 says, he went up a mountain to? Luke 9 says, he went into the wilderness to? Jesus was always praying. Luke 11 says, he went to a certain place to? And then his disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. Do you know the disciples never asked Jesus to teach them how to heal? They didn't ask him to teach them how to lay hands on the sick, how to preach. The only thing the Bible says the disciples ever asked Jesus was, teach us to pray. Because they saw Jesus' life of prayer. And they realized that's where his power came from. That's where his communion came from. That's where his strength came from. In Luke 18, Jesus said, you always ought to pray and don't quit. And then in Gethsemane in Luke 22, it says Jesus withdrew and knelt down and and then the very end of Jesus' life, he's hanging on a cross, Luke 23. What's he doing? He's praying. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus lived a life of prayer. And Jesus only ever wanted the church to be first a house of prayer. Matthew 21, Jesus comes into the temple. And everything is going on in the temple except prayer. And Jesus was so incensed, he got a whip. He flipped over the tables. He drove out the animals. And he said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. For all nations, he was quoting Isaiah 56, which says there shall be joy in my house of prayer. But Jesus said, you've made it a den of thieves. You're preventing the Gentiles from worshiping. Everything is going on in here except prayer. Jesus has only ever wanted us to be first a house of prayer. The first characteristic is, do we believe in prayer? And my question to you is, do you 
believe in prayer. Yes, absolutely. We read about it in the Bible. The Bible says to pray. Pastor Ken says to pray. Pastor David says to pray. We know we should pray. We know we ought to pray. But you know what? That's not whether you believe in prayer. Do you know what the true test of believing in prayer is? You pray. You pray. Turn to your neighbor and say, yeah, you pray. You pray. When our priority, when prayer is our priority, it's always our first resort. It won't be our last resort. Right. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite little books on prayer is called 70 Years of Miracles. It's written by an alliance pastor by the name of Richard Harvey. And my favorite story in this book of miracles is the glass flask story. And Richard Harvey, when he was a first-year student at the college he went to, every first-year student had to go through the infamous Dr. Lee's first-year chemistry course. And the reason it was infamous is that Dr. Lee was an atheist, and every year he subjected every student on that campus to a three-week lecture series debunking prayer. And so when Richard Harvey found this out, he was a zealous Christian and he prayed. When he found this out, he was disturbed by it. And he went to the Lord and asked Jesus what to do. And Jesus said to him, I want you to take up Dr. Lee's glass flask challenge. Because at the end of every uh, series of lectures, Dr. Lee would issue the glass flask challenge. And he would say, if there's anybody here who still believes in the power of prayer... I want you to pray that when I drop this glass flask, it won't break. And of course, in all the years he did the lectures, nobody ever took him up on it. Until Richard Harvey's year. And uh, they did the three-week lecture series, Demunking Prayer. And then Richard Harvey had determined that God wanted him to take the glass flask challenge. He found another believer on the campus because he believed in corporate prayer. And the two of them agreed that God would somehow keep this glass flask from breaking when they took the challenge. So the final day came, and Dr. Lee stood up very confidently and gave his final lecture. And then he said, and now is there anybody here who still believes in the power of prayer? There was a hush. Nobody even wanted to breathe. And then Richard Harvey stood up. He said, yes, Dr. Lee, I still believe in the power of prayer. Dr. Lee could hardly believe it. He was amazed. He said, young man, do, do, do you realize what's going to happen? I'm going to get you to pray. This flask won't break. Then I'm going to drop it. It's going to smash all over the floor. And you are going to look very foolish. Do you still want to pray? He said, yes, Dr. Lee, I do. Dr. Lee couldn't believe it, so he's rubbing his hands together. The, the whole lecture theater is gasping, like, what's going to happen? And Richard Harvey prayed a very simple prayer. He said, Lord Jesus, I believe you hear and answer prayer. Would you keep this glass flask from breaking and glorify your holy and powerful name? Amen. Now, there were no doors or windows in that lecture theater. But when Dr. Lee dropped the flask, it arched in the air, came down, landed on his foot, and rolled onto the floor unbroken. The theater went crazy. The kids were shouting and cheering. 
Dr. Lee went silent. And never again did Dr. Lee ever do that three-week series debunking prayer. Because when we pray, something always happens. Second characteristic of a praying church is they were corporate in their prayer. Verse 24 says they raised their voices together to God. The early church was corporate in their prayer. And that's what I want to emphasize today. They were together. They didn't send everyone home to pray on their own, although there's a place for that. And they didn't send a prayer letter around, although there's a place for a prayer letter. I send out a prayer letter. And they didn't pray online, although praying online is very handy. We prayed online last night. It's a great way to pray. But, but and it's okay to do that. But they prayed together. They were all together in one place at one time calling on the name of Jesus. There's something powerful that happens when we gather for prayer. This is corporate prayer. The church gathered calling on the name of Jesus together with one heart and one voice. Some of you may remember the movie Dunkirk. 2017 came out. Anybody see the movie Dunkirk? It's a true story, amazing story about World War II. The British Army and their allies were trapped on the beach of, uh, beaches of northern France and they were going to be obliterated by the Nazis. It was an impossible situation. There was no way they were not going to get slaughtered. The whole army was going to die right at the beginning of the war. And uh, they didn't. It was one of the great miraculous rescues of all history. But the movie failed to tell the true story. When I watched the movie, I thought, what on earth? They missed the whole point of the true story. Here's the true side of the story. In May 1940, half a million Allied troops were trapped on the Dunkirk beaches of northern France. Hitler's armored divisions were only 15 miles away, and his air force was strafing and bombing the beach every day. On Sunday, May 26th, 1940, the Archbishop of Canterbury and King George VI called a national day of prayer. Wow. It was the second last time they did this, ironically, in Britain's history. Within 24 hours, and, and, and there were hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people all over Britain who prayed. You can see the lineups out of cathedrals and Anglican churches. They, they prayed all that day. Within 24 hours of that National Day of Prayer, Hitler inexplicably commanded all his armies to stop. His generals were so upset they couldn't believe it. They were about to wipe out the whole British army and the Allies and Hitler suddenly says no. 24 hours after this day of prayer. And not only that, for six days the Germans didn't advance and for six days the, the British, the, the English Channel was covered in a fog and a calm sea and hundreds and hundreds of vessels 
came over from England and rescued 334,000 men from certain death. When we pray, something always happens. The Undersecretary of the Foreign Office in England said it was a miracle what had happened. And it was because God had intervened. Number three characteristic. They were united in prayer. Verse 24 says they raised their voice to God in one accord. The New American Standard and the King James Version says, in one accord. This little phrase, one accord, doesn't mean they were just together physically. It means they were of one mind. They were unanimous. They were in agreement. They were in unity. And this unity it was not just about prayer. This unity was relational unity, and it was community. That's why... A husband and wife praying together is so powerful. Do you know one of the most difficult things to do? One of the things the devil, I think, uh, attacks most is a husband and wife praying together. Because it's one of the most powerful forms of unity. And this, this third characteristic is about the power of unity in prayer. It's about keeping our relationships free of offense and other things, criticism, negativity, walking in harmony with one another, walking in symphony with one another. The Bible says unity is important because it's where God commands his blessing. Psalm 133 says, Matthew 18 verse 19, Jesus said, if two of you agree, if two of you are in symphony and harmony, in unity about things, Concerning anything you ask, God will give it to you. It'll be done for you by my Father in heaven. That's the power of unity in prayer. Mary and I had a, a, a one, we have four daughters, and one of our daughters went wayward. You know, your kids get to an age, when they're young, you can, you can control your kids more. But when they get to a certain age, you can't do that. They're, they become adults, young adults. They have to have the freedom to make their own decisions. And all you're left with is prayer. That's why it's so important that you build uh, an altar of prayer as a family early on. Because that's all you're going to have when, when your kids get older. Anyhow, this daughter went astray. And, and we, we didn't even know how much astray uh, she had gone. But Mary and I knew there was something wrong. And so we started to fast and pray every week for this daughter. And we fasted and prayed for months. And on November the 4th, 2011, we were driving to Saskatchewan uh, to preach at a church for the weekend. And suddenly, as we're driving along on the, on the highway, number one, we get a phone call. It's from this daughter. She's weeping. She said, Mom and Dad, I met with Jesus last night. She said, I, I realize how wrong I've been. My whole life has, has, has taken a turn for the worse, and I've repented. I'm finished with what, was, what I was doing in, in, in the past. She said, I'm starting a new day today. And, and she did. In fact, she counts her, she actually records her her salvation, the Lordship of Jesus coming into her life, 2000, November the 4th, 2011. And so Mary and I were thrilled. We put the phone down. We prayed with her. And, 
And uh, we put the phone down and we looked at each other. We thought, how did this happen? It was such a miraculous turnaround. I'll tell you how it happened. Because when we something always happens. In 1984, Los Angeles was hosting the Olympics. And they were, they were very uh, afraid that there was going to be a terrorist outbreak like there had been in 1972 in Munich where some uh, terrorists killed 11 Israeli wrestlers. And so because there was a fear of, of more terrorism, Youth with a Mission and hundreds of churches in the LA area, they decided over the two weeks of the Olympic Games to have fasting and 24-hour prayer. So they mobilized a huge prayer movement in the city of Los Angeles. And of course, the, the, those two weeks of the Olympic Games, there was, there was no terrorism, no violence. They had been praying specifically against terrorism and violence. Nothing happened. But there was more. Something very unusual took place in Los Angeles. Over that two-week period, not only was there no terrorism or violence, there were no murders for two weeks. And the uh, Los Angeles Police Department was so perplexed while there were no murders, they launched an investigation to find out why weren't there any murders over those two weeks. But we know why there wasn't, because when we pray, something always happens. The fourth characteristic of a praying church is they were God-focused and God-centered in their prayers. Look at verse 24. It says, they lifted their voices together with God and said, here's their prayer. Here's the prayer starting in verse 24b. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our, of your, our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and plot, people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your service to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. I love that prayer. They started with God. They didn't start with their problem. They could have said, help, we're in trouble. They're persecuting us. They're threatening us. They're going to kill us. We're outnumbered. Now, there's a place to mention your problems. There's a place to say help. But these people were God-centered in their prayers. They were God-focused. They started with God. They started with His sovereignty. They started with His power. They started with the victory of His Son, Jesus Christ. And they kept referring to Him. He's in control. They're not in control. You can either focus on your situation. You can focus on your problem in prayer. Or you can focus on God. The early church 
chose to focus on God. They fixed their eyes on Jesus. They rehearsed God's sovereign power and control. They reminded themselves of God's supremacy. Why? They were building their faith. They were building their faith, lifting their perspective, declaring the truth and reality of what was really going on. And that's why we begin with God in thanksgiving and praise. I heard it this morning. <clears throat> there were a couple of you prayed in the prayer meeting. Begin. You begin with God. That's why we begin with thanksgiving. We're reminding ourselves of what he's done, who he is. And that builds our faith and helps us to be God-centered and God-focused in our prayers. And lastly, the fifth characteristic of a praying church is they were effective in prayer. Look at what verse 31 says. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit afresh, anew, right then, and continued to speak the word of God with all boldness. When they had prayed, something happened. There was an earthquake. There was an empowerment. And there was evangelism. They spoke the word of God boldly. Prayer doesn't just change us. Prayer changes situations. Prayer changes circumstance. Prayer changes people. Prayer changes history. Uh, there's a true story about a church in the U.S. And this uh, church uh, was really upset because the property next door was bought by a bar owner, tavern owner in the States. You, you, you know what a bar is. A bar is where there's lots of drinking going on and, and uh, everything that comes out of drinking, if, if you've ever been around, there's fights and all kinds of not, not good stuff going on. Anyhow, the church was really upset. They didn't want a bar beside their church building. And so they appealed to the owner and said to the owner, look, you know, we don't want a bar here. Can't you go build it somewhere? No, no. He said, I'm building it right here. They said, so they wrote letters, they petitioned, they protested, they, they did everything. And still, this guy, he built his bar right beside the building. So as a last resort, guess what they did? They prayed. They prayed. They had a prayer meeting, and in the prayer meeting, they asked God, a corporate prayer meeting, they asked God if somehow he could get rid of this, move this, this bar somewhere else. Well, shortly after the prayer meeting, there was a thunderstorm and lightning struck the bar and burned it to the ground. The church was delighted until the bar owner found out the church had had a prayer meeting and then he blamed the church for burning his building down. Well, the church said, well, we, it was lightning. It was a thunderstorm. Anyhow, the bar owner slapped a lawsuit on them, took them to court, and the arguments went back and forth, back and forth. The bar owners insisting these people prayed, God heard their prayers, he answered, he struck my building with lightning and burned it to the ground. And the church is going, it was lightning, it was a thunderstorm. 
Finally, after all the argument went back and forth, back and forth, the judge dismissed the case with this summary statement. Wherever the guilt may lie, one thing is certain. The bar owner clearly believes in the power of prayer, whereas the church does not. But, but we do believe in the power of prayer, don't we? Because when we... Amen.